So there are really two main um, places that are that are the starting point for um, getting involved in Buddhist practice, and um, those are refuge and morality, refuge and ethics. So it's traditional to begin every Buddhist teaching or Buddhist meditation practice by going for refuge. And we do that first by, we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And we go for refuge to the Buddha by bringing to mind the, um, the promise of the Buddha. The, the notion that our mind is perfectible or that mind itself is perfectible, and we can use our particular instantiation of mind to move in a positive direction and, and move towards perfecting the mind. And how the, the Buddha described a, a, a perfected mind is a, is a being that has total omniscience and perfect love and compassion, unlimited love and compassion. So when we're going for refuge to the Buddha, we are, the word refuge itself means that we are going towards something that, that can protect us, that we can um, take shelter in. And the, the, I, the reason that refuge is the beginning part of, the beginning phase of a Buddhist practice is that we are turning our mind away from taking refuge in conventional things which are fallible. We take refuge in things like when, if our house catches on fire, we take refuge in the fire department. We take refuge in uh, a career or money or relationships. But these things are fallible sources of refuge. They're not always there for us when we need them. And in fact, sometimes the very thing that we take refuge in can turn against us and become the very thing that uh, becomes a cause of suffering. So when we are, we're taking refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in what are called the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and we're turning our mind away from these sources of refuge that can fail us and towards sources of refuge that can provide real lasting protection. And the first of these is the Buddha, the, the idea, the promise, the, um, the assertion that we can use our lives to move closer to a state of having a perfected mind. The second is the Dharma. We take refuge in the Dharma um, by turning our minds towards the methodology and the system and the, the thought experiments and the exercises that we can use to um, put, the, the, put the Buddha's assertion into practice in our own life. So um, these are like the teachings of the Buddha. They are the, um, the stories of other people who have become enlightened um, or um, Buddhist saints, people who have put the Buddhist teachings into practice and produced true realizations themselves. Um, these stories are like, uh, you know, pep talks or, you know, ways to sort of boost our confidence. Like other people have done it too. And, uh, and we can learn from their experiences. We can learn from their stories. And the, the third is the Sangha. And the Sangha are, these, are the fact that other people have done this, that other people are putting the Buddhist methodology into practice 
And we have other um, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, not just Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, who we often see, you know, represented in iconography. But there are many other Buddhas, uh, many other people who have um, become enlightened by practicing the Buddhist methodology. Um, and they are kind of like egging us on, you know, you can do it too. <clears throat> and so in, in one respect, that's the Sangha. And in another respect, the Sangha are the people in our lives who are supporting our practice, like the, the people who run this nonprofit organization, the, the Dharma Center that we're in. You know, a lot of, put, a lot of people put um, time and money and personal resources into making sure that there's a place in town where we can come and practice meditation together and where we can study these things and where we can keep a library of books that we can look at and things like that. And also the Sangha are the, you know, people who come to a Dharma center on a Thursday night instead of all the other things that you could be doing. Um, and, you know, practicing community together um, by wanting to learn more about how to become better people. So the, um, we go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And um, that's how we kind of put our foot on the path, you know, turn our minds towards something that might be able to really help us in a lasting way. And the other main entree into the Buddhist uh, methodology, the Buddhist worldview, is, um, are the vows of morality. Um, you know, it, it's, it's good to be a nice person, and it's helpful and beneficial to be kind, um, but, but the... Um, the idea of vowed morality in Buddhism is quite a bit more powerful than that. It's not, it's not incidental that morality is, the, is a cornerstone of Buddhist practice. Uh, it's very, uh, it's critical, it's crucial to the entire system, in fact. Uh, and the reason for that is because of causality, which is in Buddhist terminology called karma. Um, we are we're very much used to the idea of causality, of apparent, of apparent causality. We, what I mean is karma is not that far-fetched, you know? It's not like, it's not happening by magic. We're already used to the idea of causality, you know? We are used to the idea that you get to the Dharma Center because you have a car that is properly functioning and it has gasoline in the tank and you've got the right key and if, we, if you use the key, it'll start the car and then you can drive across town and you get to the Dharma Center. Um, you know, if we, if we didn't believe in causality, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't trust the car to get us there. You know, if, if we believed that there, if there were not cause, think causes that produce results reliably, then we would think that when you put the key and turn the ignition that anything could happen. The, the car might spontaneously teleport you back in time or it might collapse into a black hole or the atoms might dissipate. And those things, of course, all sound absurd. And that shows that we have you know, obvious faith in, in um, causes and effects. Um, it's like why we go to school, right? We go to school because we want to learn new things because it's going to help us improve our lives. It's going to help other people improve their lives. If we didn't think that, uh, if we didn't believe in causality, we would have no reason to, to do things to improve ourselves. We wouldn't, we wouldn't put things into effect with the, expect that they, with the expectation that they would have 
certain kinds of results down the line. And so in, uh, but this isn't the only kind of causality there is. In, in um, breaking it into sort of a finer distinctions of the different kinds of causality, this, this type of causality is material causality, where um, we see the physical world acting in more or less reliable ways. But at the same time, you know, having the car with gas in the tank and the right key is not necessarily the cause of getting to the Dharma Center on Thursday night because you could have the, you could have the car with gas in the tank and the right key and, and not get to the Dharma Center. You could intend to get to the Dharma Center, but could, something could happen and interrupt you. And conversely, if, if having the car and the key with gas in the tank and everything was the cause of getting to the Dharma Center, then everybody who had the the, everybody who had the car and the key and the gas in the tank would necessarily come to the Dharma Center, right? The car would, having the car would be the cause of getting to the Dharma Center. And so a cause is something that works 100% of the time to produce its result, and without which the result could never come if you didn't have the cause. So material causality is not the only way that uh, causality is working. Um, when we're looking at karma, we would also say that there are causes and there are conditions. And so even if you have the material cause or the immediate cause, if you don't have the right conditions, then the result won't come. And the, uh, the common metaphor is like the acorn and the oak tree, that the, the acorn is the material cause for the oak tree, but if the acorn isn't planted in the soil and it, and it doesn't have sufficient water, then it won't necessarily turn into the oak tree. Or it could sprout, but somebody runs over it with their lawnmower and, it cu- and cuts it down and it doesn't have the chance to become the, tree, the oak tree. Or you could have the acorn fall on the ground and then a creature eats it before it has a chance to sprout. So even though the acorn is the, the necessary material cause for the, for the oak tree, it, there are still conditions in place. So... The, in one sense, you could say the acorn is the cause for the tree, but in another sense, you would have to say that there is some other factor there, there are some other true cause that will always lead to the result of the oak tree. And that's when we start getting into uh, karma. And what we, mean by, what we mean by karma is that there are, there are many subtle effects that we're not necessarily able to perceive. In fact, Buddhism would say that we necessarily cannot perceive the true causes because they are so subtle. There are so many moving parts. There are so many different factors that a a limited consciousness like an individual human being is not really able to perceive. So when we are thinking about what we're doing to to uh, put the causes in place to have the effects that we want to see down in the future, we have to, with karma, we have to start letting go of sort of our attachment to material causality. We have to be open-minded to the fact that there are, that there are levels of causality that we're not aware of and we don't necessarily have control over as much as we would like to believe that we do. So in, with karma... We're talking not just about material causality, but also the actions of the body, speech, and mind. Um, these are the, called the, the three gates in, in Buddhism. Um, 
And actions of body, again, are pretty obvious. Um, that's, more on the lev- that's more on the level of material causality. But it, it's still, there's an indication in, in the laws of karma that, that our uh, actions can have unintended consequences, that things don't always go the way that we plan them, even if we carefully put the, what we think are the right causes into place. But on an even more subtle level are the uh, actions of speech. And the things we say and the way we say them have very real impacts on the world. And we, we can see this in obvious ways by like when we say something that hurts the feelings of somebody that we care about. And we say the thing and we can see that it hurts them. And then we realize, oh, that thing, that was, that was not cool. I should not have said that thing. Um, we can see it on that level. But again, karma ripples out in ways that we can't perceive with our immediate senses. We can't perceive with our uh, apparently objective perspective. And even more subtle than that are the effects of our mind. And this is where karma um, becomes very subtle and a little more complex, uh, harder to understand, but also where it's most powerful. Because this is where our intentions color the way that we carry ourselves in the world. And the, the type of person that we, the type of person that we want to be, the type of personality that we cultivate, um, influences uh, the actions of our speech and the actions of our body. Um, in Buddhism, it, they're quite clear that our thoughts are themselves causes for future results. And so intention itself has an impact. When I say that, you know, intention sort of underlies our speech and underlies our actions, I'm using that in a way as a metaphor for how our, the, the way that we use our mind influences the world. According to Buddhist metaphysics and Buddhist causality, the thoughts themselves have an impact. So even harboring a thought of anger, even if it doesn't come out in our speech, we are creating causes that are going to come back at us uh, as a result in the future. And that's the, like, that's, the basic, that's the basic law of karma, that the way that we act, the things that we say, and the ways that we think are um, like, we're like throwing boomerangs out into the, into the world, or like an echo, where we, uh, each thought is putting something out And then there's a period of time where it comes back at us. And initially, if we don't know what an echo is or we're caught off guard by an echo, it doesn't sound like our own voice coming back at us. It has a different kind of of quality. And so the same is true with karma. When things come back at us, they they don't seem like they are the direct result of something that I thought. And this is because karma is functioning on a timeline that is not... Uh, determinate. Um, and if, if it seems like I'm kind of skimming over some topics, you're right. The Buddhism is a huge system, and uh, I want to get specifically to the topic of morality and ethics and why they, why they work and function the way that they do. Um, so I'm kind of glossing over karma and especially emptiness. Emptiness is the, emptiness is the mirror side of karma, um, Emptiness is why karma works the way that it does. And just to briefly say it, um, emptiness is 
the lack of this lack of self-existence to phenomena, the lack of uh, inherent characteristics to phenomena. Things feel like they are out there in a self-existent world, and we're kind of wandering through, bumping into them. But the way, but really, the way that we experience the world and what we experience is the uh, reflection of our karma coming back at us. So what we put out returns and is the, the world that we're speaking, uh, the world that we are uh, interacting with. Um, one of my teachers puts it as the, the world that you experience now is the reflection of the person who you once were. And the person that you are now, the way that you react to things that come up, is creating the world that you are going to live in in the future. Uh, I think there are really interesting correlates here with psychology because we are in some, you know, in some way with karma, one aspect of karma you could say would be that we're dealing with habits and memory and our identity is shaped by our memories and we are the person, the person who we think we are is sort of the sum total of our memories of our experiences. And so if we have experiences of, or, you know, recollections of us doing harmful things, then we grow to see ourselves as a harmful person. If we have a tendency to lose our temper and get angry, that can become an identity, and I can become an angry person, you know? But that's, uh, that's an identity. That's, uh, that's a story that we're telling ourselves. But that story is very deeply ingrained by the, the narrative of our life. And, uh, and also in the form of habit, if we... Um, if we, uh, as we develop habits, the habits reinforce themselves, you know? So when we, ha when we have a habit, each time we uh, practice the habit, it gets stronger. And the, the tendency to do that thing again next time becomes strengthened. So these are all different aspects of karma, and I'm trying to get at how it's a subtle process that we're not necessarily consciously aware of and not necessarily consciously in control of. And so we're learning about it. We study karma. We learn about the laws of karma. And we begin to practice morality um, because we're trying to change the path of, of, the, of the flow of the river. We want to get out of habitual reactivity. We want to get out of immediate emotional responding to things and gain a little bit of control over our habits. We want to be able to get a little bit of control over our story of our identity and and sh move it in the, a positive direction, move it in, a, in the direction that we want it to go in. Because again, Buddha said that, uh, Buddha said, Buddha's assertion, the scientific, uh, the premise that he is um, providing us, and the series of experiments and thought, thought experiments that, he, that we get to practice with Dharma, are all based on this idea that we, we do have control, and that we can gain more control and more facility in the way that we use our minds and that there's a real payoff uh, in, in the sense of um, having feelings of peace and compassion, kindness, and love, um, which are all things that are nice to feel, by the way. Um, so when we get into, uh, when we start looking at the way that our actions uh, of body, speech, and mind impact um, the the flow of karma, and the types of results that we're going to experience in the future. There are, um, 
a few kind of tips or like key points. Um, and one of these is that the intensity of our actions indicates influences the uh, the strength of the karma that's planted. Um, so um, karma is planted with uh, or with, we're using it when I say planted, we're using the metaphor of the seed. You know, this is a common way of talking about karma, that we plant karmic seeds and then the ones that we tend to are the ones that are more likely to sprout. But of course, we have we've been planting seeds for, you know, I mean, we we plant 64 karmic seeds per blink of the eye. And so we're planting a lot of karma and the ones that sprout are are not necessarily the ones that we want to sprout. So we want to uh, feed the, the, the seeds that we want to have grow, you know, and pull up the weeds that we don't want to have growing in our, in our karmic garden. Um, but they're not literally seeds, you know, that's just a, a metaphor. Um, but the intensity of our emotion and the, um, the, the uh, importance of the object towards which we're acting has a huge impact on the way that our that we're planting our karma. So uh, a karma planted with a, a very strong emotion is more powerful than a karma that we are planting absent-mindedly. So, like for example, you know, one of the basic vows is to not harm other beings' bodies. You know, don't kill, uh, don't kill other beings. And so the karma of killing the bugs that you eat when you're asleep is relatively very weak, right? Because you're not, it's not something you're even consciously aware of. But um, committing an act of violence with intense hatred or anger creates a very, very strong karma. And this indicates how, you know, how much that's going to affect the habit, how that's going to affect your psychology. And eventually, you know, according to the laws of karma, the fact that we get old, the fact that we get sick, the fact that we have to die is because of the karma of killing, which we do, you know, absent-mindedly all all the time, you know? I mean, how many bugs did we accidentally kill on the front of our car while we were driving between Eaton Road and the the Dharma Center, you know? So, not to be too heavy-handed, but we, you know, we have a lot of, to some extent we have a lot of power, and to some extent we're kind of trapped in in the, the flow of karma as it's happening to us. So, um, and then also the uh, importance of the object towards which we, co- uh, we are acting. Um, so when we um, commit a karma towards somebody who's important to us, that's a much stronger karma than um, committing an act towards somebody who, uh, we is, who we, if we're doing, again, doing something kind of absent-mindedly or not really paying attention um, So um, that's, and, and, and for example, that's like why um, guru yoga works. Uh, it works in both directions, right? It's, it, this is true for negative karmas, but it's also true for positive karmas. So if we commit karmas towards somebody who is very close to us, somebody who we care very much about, and we commit that karma with a, with a, with a big sense of uh, love and generosity and altruism, that creates a very strong, powerful, uh, positive karma. And this is part of why um, guru yoga works, because in guru yoga, we're choosing to have a very, uh, a relationship with somebody who's very important to us. The word guru literally means heavy. 
in Sanskrit. And so guru is like somebody who's got a lot of weight in your life. You know, they, they, they carry a lot of weight. They're a heavy guy or a heavy gal in your life. And so committing, you know, acts of karma, acts of generosity towards your guru have a very big impact. Um, another sort of tip or rule of thumb for karma is that um, we need to keep track of our ethics. Um, if we're if we're mostly on autopilot, like 90% of the time, we're just sort of responding to habit. We're reacting to things as they come up. So um, the beginning of, a big part of beginning to keep uh, ethical guidelines is to track them uh, by keeping a journal. Um, a good way to keep a journal is to check in every couple of hours and to look at what you've done um, ethically to help people or harm people in that, in that time. And I'll get more specific about what that means in just a second. So, um, specifically now, moving from karma and getting specifically into the vows and what the vows are and why, and why, why they're important, there are two main levels of, of vows in Buddhism. Um, there are the, the first level are called the individual liberation, and the second, uh, second set are called the bodhisattva vows. And these are um, pretty simple stages. Uh, I mean, they're simple to understand. The individual liberation vows are simply a commitment to stop harming other beings. And the idea here is that we stop planting bad karma. Um, When we experience a bad karma, when something bad happens to us, when when some unpleasant experience pops up in my life, that's a bad karmic seed ripening. And then the way that you react to that is going to plant a new seed. So somebody cuts you off in traffic, if you get angry, the, the getting cut off in traffic is uh, a negative thing that's happening to you, a bad karma ripening. And then when you, if you react to it negatively by getting angry and cursing that person or having some really strong negative emotion towards them, you're planting a new bad karma that's going to ripen in the future. So when we take the Pratimoksha vows, um, Pratimoksha is an individual liberation uh, in Sanskrit. So we stop planting new bad karma And the reason it's called individual liberation is because eventually, if we do this perfectly, um, eventually our backlog of old bad karma will run out. It'll get, our our negative bank account, our our bank account of negative (laughs) karmic seeds will get drained, and eventually we'll end up in in sort of a relatively pleasant environment where no new bad things are happening to us. And that would be sort of like... uh, this is like the nirvana of the um, sort of like a lesser form of nirvana where everything's fine, but um, it, you know you've gotten yourself out of having negative experiences happening to you. But when you look out on the world, you still see that you're in a world of samsara, and other beings are experiencing a lot of suffering. So that's why we have the the bodhisattva vows. The bodhisattva vows. The next stage of the of vows are about planting new good karma. Because if we want to get out of samsara altogether, if we want to end suffering completely, we want to get on this upward spiral of new good things happening to us. So the first stage is to stop harming people. And then once we've gotten really good at that, we move on to this, the next stage, which is to plant good karma, really start helping people. So, um, so that's how... That's how vowed morality can lead to enlightenment. That's how this technique, here's the thought experiment that Buddha is proposing to us to to test in our own 
the world of our own mental laboratory to see how it works is if, uh, if we can stop planting new bad karma by, by minimizing the harm that we're causing and, planting, and start planting new good karma by helping others, how can we change the world by, by having more good karmas coming back at us? And if more good karmas are coming back at us, then we have more resources, more capacity, more emotional and mental stability, which gives us a greater capacity to help others, which allows us to plant more good karma, which will come back at us as even more resources and more beneficial things. And how, how much and how quickly can we ratchet that up to try to get out of suffering and to try to get other beings out of suffering as well? So this is... Um, uh, this is also why taking vows is important because um, we, we can begin, any of us can begin by keeping the vows, by, by keeping a journal and just tracking what we're doing. And if you get good at that and, and you enjoy the practice and you feel like it's helping you, then there, there would be a formal vow ceremony where you would find a heavy dude, a guru, and, uh, or a gal, of course, um, and... Uh, you know, formally commit to them, like, from now on, I'm going to do my best to no longer harm other beings. Because it's good to be nice, and it's good to try to not harm other beings. It's better to keep track and, like, check, you know, every two hours. What have I done in the last two hours to harm people, and what have I done to help them? But it's even more powerful to, like, get down on your knee in front of somebody who you really respect and say, I promise to do my best. So these are techniques to accelerate the process of of, uh, of, you know, of moving our karmic trajectory in a new direction. But it's also why it's important to master the basics before you take on another level, you know? It's like sometimes we hear about the bodhisattva vows and we're like, you know, some people get really gung-ho about it and like want to jump in with both feet. And it's like, okay, but, you know, let's start with, start with manageable things and then, and then move up. You know, add, you know, as your capacity grows, that's when you can add more to your, add more to your plate. Because, um, you know, the converse of having, of, of having a lot of power behind the, the karma when you've taken vows is that when you break the vows, it has, has increased negative karma as well, and increased intensity to the negative karma as well. So, um, proceed with caution, you know, it's like stuff you can't unlearn once you've, once you've heard it. Um, so there are different, uh, the pratimoksha vows, the individual, individual liberation vows, there are different groups of these. There are um, the five precepts, which are common in Chan uh, Buddhism. There are the, um, uh, the um, lay monks vows, which, are, uh, which I learned about from Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, there are the ordained monks' vows, which is something none of us really need to worry about. It takes years to become a monk, so let's just start with where we're at, because um, they have like 200 pratimoksha vows. Um, the bodhisattva vows are like 200 vows. If you, if you take a vow ceremony, uh, you'll get something like this, a set of, this is what I got, a set of cards that have all of the vows that I've committed to printed out. And so this has 147 um, because this is the Bodhisattva vows and the Pratimoksha vows. Um, uh, and actually, I don't think I took all of these. Some of these on the card I didn't agree to. I didn't agree to. I'm like, I'm not ready for that one. Don't give me that vow. Uh, or I asked for it, and they were like, I don't think you're ready for that one. 
don't, you know, cross that one off the list. Um, so, um, and so something like this is really, is really helpful because then you have like your flashcards, you know. <laughs> um, so the freedom vows, the ones that I, uh, that I want to share with you tonight are 10 freedom vows. Um, but you can, you can also split them up into a negative, which is the thou shalt nots, but into the positives as well, which is the thou shalt, there's thou, thou shalt's. And then, uh, in a way, you're kind of getting a head start on the bodhisattva vows because you're starting to think of already in a positive way. So the freedom vows, ten. Three of body, four of speech, and three of mind. Um, the first is the, the vow of not harming other beings physically. which uh, And all of these have a gradient. So, um, obviously, it's not, you know, it's not killing another being, ending another being's life. But it includes also not you know not harming them in physical ways in small in small ways you know and then the positive side of this is uh the positive way of looking at it is protect life so instead of smooshing a spider that's scurrying in your kitchen you know being attentive to carefully relocating it so as not to harm it um and remember this is because of the impact is on your mind you know it's, it's, you can't cheat karma by, like, you know, pressing pause on the karma cam. It's always on because it's your own consciousness. And so that's why it's about developing attentiveness and care and caution with what you're doing. Um, the second uh, is don't steal. And this, of course, you know, includes, like, not robbing a bank. But, but it also means not taking anything that's not freely given to you. So that includes like the box of staples in the supply closet at the office or something like that. Um, the, the third is uh, um, brahmacharya, which is a Sanskrit word, and it means sexual purity or um, avoiding sexual misconduct. And so in the grossest form, this would be committing adultery or, or um, using your sexuality to um, you know, get involved with another person's partner or something like that. You know, the way it was taught to me was don't get sexually involved with somebody who's in a committed relationship to somebody else. So even if they're coming on to you, if you know that they have a partner, then you, the vow would be to protect their relationship. That's the positive version of it is protect relationships, help bring people together, help keep people together. If people are having conflict, you know, help them resolve their conflict, support relationships. Um, but it also means, you know, not um, not flirting to get the upper hand in a relationship or something like that, you know. There's different ways that we um, can use our sexual energy to sort of get the upper hand in life. And so that's what the vow is pointing towards. Now, the vows of speech um, don't lie or deceive people. Um, and uh, And this means also, like, don't give people uh, an impression that's different than your own because we can, we can be deceptive by omission or by like conveniently you know, telling the story in a convenient way that, that leads someone to a conclusion where we didn't exactly tell a falsehood, but we definitely kind of intended to get the, give the person a different impression than the one that we ourselves have. Um, and the positive side of this is to tell the truth. Um, even when it's uncomfortable, you know, tell the hard truth. Admitting mistakes, admitting, admitting faults, um, it gets easier with time. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it's scary at first, but eventually you realize that it clears your conscience, you know, like, hey, I'm the one who left the dirty dishes in the sink. And uh, I'm sorry that I left a mess for the, that you had to clean up later or whatever, you know, just acknowledging it. Um, um, no divisive speech, speaking in ways that separate people. Um, you know, this is like having a private conversation with one person where you're like kind of trying to undermine their relationship with another person. This is like office politics all over the place. Um, and then the positive version of that is to speak in ways that bring people together, helping to build community, helping to um, mend, uh, mend divisions between people, trying to act in ways that help people get along better. Okay, we're on number five. Uh, no, number six. That was number five. Um, number six is um, harsh speech. And so, you know, like monks have vows to not uh, swear, never to use like curse words and things like that. Um, uh, so that's like the, um, that's the spirit of what this one is. Um, but there are lots of ways that we can use harsh speech. Like when we start to get irritated with somebody and we get a little snappy um, and then, you know, then things kind of escalate. I get a little snappy and then they get a little snappy and pretty soon we're in an argument. And so being able to, this is like the, the good part of planting these positive karmic seeds is like eventually you get good at noticing when you start to get irritable and say, oh, this is like right before I get snappy, which is going to provoke the other person to shouting at me and then we're going to end up in, arg in an argument. So don't speak harshly, I think is really important because you know, life is short and relationships are precious and we should really be working in ways to like treat the people in our world with kindness and, and dignity and love and respect because it's like kind of key to making the world a better place. Um, and, you know, like look at our political scene. There's like divisive speech and harsh speech all over the place. And like we're supposed to be in a democracy where like we're trying to work together to create a society where everybody feels like their needs are being met. And instead we have like massive, like every faction is at every other faction's throat. And so, you know, that's like, that's the result of my karma of harsh speech. That's my karma of divisive speech. I have to take responsibility for what I'm seeing. Um, and I can, and I can start just by like trying to be kind to people in, in my immediate environment. And so speak, you know, don't speak harshly. The, the converse of that is, uh, you know, speaking sweetly to people, like being, um, being attentive and kind with people who you have transactional relationships with, like the, like the person in the, the cashier at the grocery store or whatever, like having like a meaningful, like as brief as it is, at least like show them the dignity of, of their humanity, recognize their humanity. The next is um, don't speak idly, idle speech which is um, basically gossip, celebrity gossip magazines and like taking an, a prurient interest in, in other people's drug addiction problems or, or uh, relationship problems, you know? Um, and the converse of this is one of my favorites is meaningful speech, you know? Thinking about if the things that you're going to say really are worthwhile and uh, are going to help people. And then the last three are um, the, the vows related to mind. Um, and the first one is, it has different names depending on who you, know, who you ask, who you hear it from, but um, it's sometimes called greed or covetousness 
Uh, this is like jealousy. Um, being happy when being unhappy when somebody else gets something that they want. This is kind of the it should have been me syndrome. Like where you see somebody driving a nicer car and you're like, oh man, I wish that was my car, and, or whatever you know, whatever the the thing is, you know. Um, and so the converse of this one is is rejoicing uh, when you, somebody else gets something that they want. Be happy for them. And this is what plants the good karma, which is going to lead to you getting the thing that you want in the future anyway. Um, so in, when you notice that jealousy come up, recall that for, for the jealousy to be there, there has to be something in the other person that you admire or respect or look up to. This, I just, this is a, a new kind of tip that I recently got for, for this uh, jealousy thing. And so whenever I feel jealous of somebody, I realize that I'm, in a way I'm looking up to them, I'm admiring them, but I'm like, oh, it's not me, I'm, oh, and then I, and I like impute that negativity onto them. And so instead be like, wow, that's great that they got the car or the job or the promotion or whatever that they want. Good for them. You know, maybe someday I'll get that too, but not like, you know, with this, dull kind of anger thing hatred um oh that's the next one hatred or ill will which is being happy when someone gets something they don't want um when somebody we don't like gets sick or something bad happens to somebody who we think is a bad person maybe 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 they really are a bad person you know we we got white supremacists operating openly in our society now like that's that's a bad scene um, but nonetheless, it's our bad karma if we're like, yeah, punch a Nazi in the face or whatever. Um, that's, a t- you know, that's a tricky one because we also don't want to support white supremacy, obviously. But, but again, it's the effect on our own mind. If we're wishing harm to come to another person, that affects, that affects my mind. And that's what I need to change, you know? Um, and so, uh, and the, the result, the, the converse, the positive of this one is to have compassion. And so when we like, in this case, you know, we need to have, we need to have compassion that people are ignorant and they have wrong worldview that they have, that they have screwed up ways of seeing the world that is causing them to do things that are harming themselves and other. And that's, and that's, that's heavy karma for them. And, um, we need to have compassion from them because that gives us the power to act with intelligence and clarity and respond in a way that is not just going to make the situation worse by adding more fuel to the fire. And the final, the final one is um, don't cultivate ignorance. Instead, cultivate wisdom. Um, this, this is usually called uh, wrong worldview. Don't have wrong worldview. And... Um, and like a basic way of having wrong worldview is believing your own opinions, you know, putting too much stock in your own uh, ideas about the world and saying, okay, my, I, like obviously I'm right and you're wrong. Like when you, that thought goes through your head, you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's ignorance. That's, that's, I'm putting too much stock in my own opinions. And even if you know that you're right and the other person's wrong, you know, still have, still Recall the laws of karma and realize that you need to react to the situation in a way that's going to plant good karma and not plant bad karma. 
Um, and so that's the positive side of cultivating a, a, pos- a good worldview, correct worldview, is to learn about the laws of karma, study dharma, learn about, the, about how karma and emptiness work together, learn the vows, keep a, a vow journal, and, um, and begin noticing how your mind is working in these little ways, not just your actions and not just the things you say, but also the way that you're using your mind. Start to pay attention to that. That's cultivating right worldview. So there we go, the freedom vows. Um, I obviously encourage you to keep a little journal and check in every couple of hours. Write these down in the first, uh, in the first pages of the book. Um, if you don't remember them, they're easy to find on the internet. You can, you know, you can use your favorite list. The Ten Commandments are, are a fine set of vows if you're, if you're into that approach. That works too. Um, they're pretty much the same vows. Um, in fact, all world religions more or less have the same kind of foundational set of... And it's always a list of ten. I guess it's because we have the ten fingers. But, like, you know, easy mnemonic device. Okay, I'm missing one, obviously, because I only got to nine. But... Um, There's always a list of 10. You can Google it. Um, But the important thing is to keep track. You know, if if we're not keeping track, we're pretty much um, going on autopilot. And then if that, if you start to have good results with that, consider, uh, consider finding a a spiritual teacher who would be willing to give you the vows in a formal ceremony and, uh, and seeing how that influences the way that the process works for you. See if that increases the, the strength of the karma and the way that it affects your mind. So uh, it's also customary. Here's another. Here's another uh, tip for how to plant good karma is to um, is to dedicate the karma. It's traditional at the end of a Buddhist uh, class or a Buddhist practice to dedicate the karma, because thinking about these things is generating good karma. We're generating positive worldview by. Uh, by coming to a Dharma center and, and contemplating these things. And we can dedicate that by remembering that this has a positive impact on the world, that we're becoming, we're becoming better people so that we're better able to help others. And that's tangible. That's, that's meaningful. Uh, it's, not just a, it's not just a thought experiment. It, it has a real effect in the world. And so we think of, we bring that to mind and we dedicate the karma, we dedicate the efforts by, by setting the intention that, that what we're doing here is for the, for the sake of benefiting others. Because that's really our goal, you know, to get ourselves out of suffering, but to bring everybody out of suffering with us. <laughs>